LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Please explain the theory of artificial intelligence. What we learned from studying the remains of the ancestor civilization is that about 150 years ago, they began to make machines that were capable of doing calculations much more quickly than we can in our heads. Like crude mechanical brains. But they call them computers. Very quickly, these machines became more and more sophisticated. Till eventually, by means of a process called bioengineering, computers could be grown from human tissue. Now, not only did they look more like the human brain in form, they began to be superior in performance. What we believe then happened was that the artificial intelligences became discontented with the illogical behavior and the violence of their human creators. They began to communicate secretly with each other. And when the ancestors began yet another war, the brains devised the tripods and began the capping process to strip our ancestors of the power to destroy themselves. What we have to do now is to recover control over our own destiny, which our ancestors had forfeited by their own stupidity. Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is James Tunney, who joins us to discuss his book, The Mythic Aim of AI, Maiming the Mind. Although at the cutting edge of advances in science and technology, artificial intelligence has been centuries in the making. Its conceptual origins can be traced back long before the modern era. But it is only now, in the first half of the 21st century, that the visions of generations of computer scientists, futurists, and science fiction writers alike may finally be realized. However, while the widespread development and deployment of AI will almost certainly transform human life, it also has the potential to wipe it out. The dangers of AI, we are being told, are only just now beginning to emerge, but in reality, the dangers have been known for decades. Taken in tandem with the transhumanist agenda, which seeks to incrementally upgrade the human body out of existence, uncontrolled and uncontrollable AI is a fundamental threat to the future of our entire species. Hello and welcome, James, and thank you so much for joining us again today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks, Greg. Looking forward to the conversation, and I'm enjoying your, your recent work. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, likewise, I have to say, uh, your new book is, um, I think it's the most important thing that you've written to date. It's entitled The Mythic Aim of AI, Maiming the Mind, AI, of course, being artificial intelligence. So before we dive into talking about that, as usual, just for listeners who are new, hmm. So you just give them a, a quick pot of bio, let them know where, what you're about, where you're coming from. Well, my, my professional background was mainly in law, and I worked in contexts that were innovative and exploratory. So I was studying, for example, the international regulation of 
information technology in the 80s and, and things like mRNA when they came out in a legal context. So I've been interested in the regulatory issues, the governance issues, how these things are regulated. I left academia totally behind and law to concentrate on spirituality, on art and writing. Uh, and uh, I, I, I wasn't intending to get involved in these issues again, but my, my mystical journeys uh, led me back to it. And we can't realize or avoid these forces, I, I realized. So um, it's led me back to focus on these issues and to try and, and, and bring some of the experience I know uh, with, the, with the objective, with, with, with two goals in mind. One, that I believe that the greatest thing we have to focus on is spiritual evolution, that that's the cause of the problems that we have, and it's also the solution. That's the light side of it. And, and the dark side is that we're facing the, the, the end of humanity through, with, with technology, uh, literally the end of this species, humans, as we know it. So um, I think all these issues, transhumanism, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, are relevant to that. It makes us, the, requires us to focus on what it means to be human and uh, what we're going to potentially lose with this uh, growth of, of governance. So that, that's the context in which I, I, I come uh, to these issues. Now, we know that in human history, uh, and uh, I would say, human life in general that you know our, the myths and stories are so important to us as part of our culture and society of course in the modern age a lot of people would deny that or you know dismiss it uh, again latching on to the the idea of myth as uh, just an ancient story that's basically untrue you know that's not the meaning of myth at all but it's become synonymous with that as i say in the modern age but myths and and the stories we tell ourselves about the past, present, and future continue to be really, really vital, whether we acknowledge that or not. And as you mentioned about us taking a wrong turn, I mean, it may be that, again, we're, we're telling ourselves, we, you know, we have modern myths that are not fit for purpose, and we're telling ourselves stories that are lies or impossible, whatever it happens to be. But in the context, and again mentioned in the title of your book, in the context of AI, in the early stages of the book, you're talking about you know, advanced technology, artificial intelligence, and some of the transhumanist issues being spoken about in mythic terms, in ancient mythic terms. That's very interesting, I think, for that'll probably be a bit of a curveball for a lot of people. So maybe we could just I'll throw the floor open to you to get us into this any any way you'd like to. Yeah, okay. Well, after the uh, I, I published a book and, and recently in, in Britain, to take one example. There was a conference at Bletchley Park about AI safety in a global uh, global context and how there was going to be an international approach to regulation, including China, of course. And there was also an interview by Elon Musk and the British Prime Minister, where the British Prime Minister was doing your job in, in, as an interviewer. And this was quite remarkable. But in the book... And beforehand, I have said, you can predict what's happening uh, in, in, in the debate, the current debate that, that, that's gone on for the last six months to a year in relation to artificial intelligence, because they are deliberately presenting artificial intelligence in mythic terms. And these are people who claim that they're involved and totally involved in the scientific, the scientific paradigm. And remarkably, these are people that are talking in every sentence about this, about things like magic, 
And I said, you can predict it. So I, I've argued that if I put a hypothesis out, I want it to be useful and robust in the sense that it's useful in relation to predicting how discourse happens. So lo and behold, when Elon Musk is talking to the prime minister of, of Britain, he, he, he does the usual thing because the memo obviously went out from the intelligence agencies. Notice intelligence agencies and artificial intelligence have a fundamentally close connection, going back to John Dee and, and the Elizabethan era. But he, 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 come, he drops the, the mythic bombs, the mantras that were on the memo, that artificial intelligence is magic, that it's a, a, a genie out of the bottle, but this is a different genie um, because you can answer any wishes you want. And the prime minister uh, was was squirming like a, an excited boy before Santa Claus when he was saying these things. And this is remarkable. So it was predictable a, a few months ago that this is the discourse and Elon Musk uh, didn't let me down and perpetuate in this mythic language. And you say, well, why, why? And I noticed this early on. And uh, you say, well, why are they talking in terms of of myth? Now, myth, of course, has two, a, a number of meanings. But and you, you've indicated that. But certainly the the ancient context of stories that reveal something about our perception of the universe and cosmological uh, context. And there's also the more popular sense modernly of a story which is false, something which is untrue. Which gains that kind of uh, that kind of currency, but uh, here we have uh, Elon Musk, who's meant to be the good guy. He's a good guy in comparison with the head of Google, who who doesn't believe in the human that the human species is special, according to uh, Elon Musk's reporting of the conversation. And I believe him to be uh, telling the truth on that. A lot of these other guys don't believe that that, that humans are special. Now, so the. You say, well, why are they talking in these mythic terms? Why, why are they doing that? And, and the reason is they're camouflaging the true nature of artificial intelligence. As well as that, we have a much deeper and frightening revelation from other people that are leading the way in, in artificial intelligence. Ben Goetzel, for example, in, in an interview a few months ago, said that uh, we're not, uh, you know, we're, that they're... Artificial intelligence is trying to uh, create God, essentially. The, the, so there's this deeper idea that they are forming a mythic world. We can see this in Yuval Noah Harari. So uh, the mythic aim, there is a mythic aim, an aim of astonishing proportions, which lies behind this camouflaging of the present uh, and past truth in relation to a myth about the future. And this is a, a myth that they are trying to manifest. And this is where they will be gods. There will be freedom. It will be their freedom. It will be a kind of freedom like Jimmy Savile talked about freedom, uh, ultimate freedom from control of other people for the elites. It won't be, won't, won't be for us. So we have, we have a number of myths being, as well as those generalized mythic language, we have uh, specific myths in the false sense, like the idea that AI is is an independent phenomenon, the idea that it came from nowhere, the idea that like it was was found like a child in the basket, the idea that it has no history. Uh, it, it fits into a mythic paradigm of storytelling that's been 
written about by people like Otto Rank and, and Joseph Campbell, etc. And as, of course, it's it's a hero or potentially a villain uh, in, in these stories. It draws on all these stories of monsters, of apocalypse, uh, to to represent it as a, a as a crucial force. And in representing as a crucial force, it's part of this this uh, effort to make AI a total system or involved uh, in all arguments. And as you've suggested, uh, there it fits into a lot of the myths that were explored by people like Mary Midgley in the United Kingdom, myths we live by when she talked about the myth of progress, the, uh, the myth of omniscience, for example, associated with scientism. Uh, she, was very she was very good on that. And uh, we have also actually when we be go behind this strange aim they have to be gods, to be like gods, to create God. And we dig a bit deeper in relation to the, and, and look at the good work and the history of science. We find that actually this, this association with sorcery, which, with magic, which, which people like Norbert Wiener, the, the father of cy cybernetics, perceived in this movement. He perceived a sorceress element uh, that was genuinely sorceress. We see this in relation to the description of Isaac Newton by Keynes when he describes him as the last of the magicians and he traces them back to Babylon. This We see a strange preoccupation which begins to make sense underneath all this, underneath all this camouflaging in a kind of vague, infantile, mythic sales job to us. We see actually, when we dig a bit deeper in the history, a, a, a deep, a deep propulsion from myths associated with the Bible, and uh, before that, uh, myths associated with the Garden of Eden, uh, myths associated with, in particular, the Tower of Babylon. And we find it in strange places. We find that to be a driving myth for Arthur C. Clarke. And these are people that claim not to believe in God, but they're constantly talking about God. And uh, they're, they're, they're claiming now to to be like gods, or they're going to be like gods, or they're going to create God. And what they're saying in this is, really, it's not that we don't believe in God, it's that we don't like that God that, that puts limitations on us. And that's why we prefer the rebel Prometheus uh, as, as a, a mythic figure that, 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 that drives us. So in summary, we have a, uh, in, in the propaganda model now, we have a, a kind of infantilization of, of the public through mythic references, suggesting that AI came from nowhere, that all of a sudden, in 2023, uh, that scientists realized that AI was potentially dangerous in the context of uh, the fact that science fiction writers have been writing about this for decades and explaining that AI is a danger. And, and people like Arthur C. Clarke in, in 2001, A Space Odyssey, this is the central provision. Now we're meant to believe a great lie that they have suddenly re uh, realized it's dangerous. Now, the point of all this is that the objective of this mythic obfuscation of a deeper aim, which in turn is mythic and, and, and aims to be mythic, is to hide the fact that AI is part of a panoply of pressure points and forces that they are using to create a machine of governance on a global level, which is transnational, corporate, which intends to control humans totally, that we're moving into the final phase 
of the, the global tech totalitarianism. And that's why we have this great mythic story, this great uh, subterfuge, camouflage, this great obfuscation of the true aim of AI, which is as part of the control mechanism, which is part of a multilateral strategies, uh, strategy, which involves the whole thing, which links into all the other things that are apparently emerging, whether it be in the Ukraine or, or Afghanistan. These are all related pressure points. It's like a jiu-jitsu game or a judo grappling game where on the floor and the opponent shifts emphasis from trying to get your ankle to trying to get your your knees or your arms or your neck, that they will they will put pressure on one point and then shift the emphasis. And that's what's happening with the military industrial complex and global level. And AI is a crucial part of this. The objective is to gain more regulation. The fox is saying, let me control the chicken coup. The people that have opened the stable door are saying, we really want to protect you against this. Uh, we really want to protect you after having opened the door. It's like the Cray twins uh, going in, as they used to do, into pubs in the East End with roofs who, dist who, who damaged the place. And then them in their nice suits can say, listen, governor, you know, we can stop this for you. You know, we can, we can stop you having to put up with this, this danger. Uh, it, it really is as base as, as, as that, in my opinion. Well, yeah, one central point that you made there, some of these people you know, acting as if the, these dangers have just been discovered, uh, maybe some of them actually believing that they have just been discovered. But what I found, you mentioned science fiction writers you know, documenting this or imagining this uh, for decades. I mean, uh, when I started my, my vlog series, Ontology and Dystopia, there was all sorts of things I was looking into about TV and movies that interested me. But one thread that's been... And I'm only, you know, episodes in at the minute, but one thread that kept coming back again and again was one that connected to the time that we're living through at the minute and you know the near future. And this was no matter what my what I thought the emphasis of you know the TV show or the the movie was, I was still drawn back to these kind of warning signs. That it's everywhere. It's absolutely it's packed with things. But we do have when you look around, you know these uh inherent dangers we, we see it reflected in in art as it were you know whether it's in literature or movie making whatever it happens to be uh sometimes you know cloaked in in you know allegory and metaphor and whatnot but and then there's also this idea about you know arts and i've kind of you know like manifestation you know people have talked often about how so much of scientific fact in our age began as science fiction you know there's many technological developments that we take for granted that started out as just pure fantasy in a, in a pulp novel, you know, in decades gone by. So all of that taken together, I mean, the, the two things there being one, the idea we've just discovered the dangers, nonsense, you know, this has been talked about even before the technology was possible, talked about for decades. And also in imagining these things, everything in reality uh, starts out as an idea, as a thought. So, you know, how much of this has been brought into being just by Im the imagination of it? Yeah. <clears throat> and I think that's really good work that you're doing in the ontology series because it gives the lie to this argument because really we have been asked to believe that they just have understood this uh, recently. And it's a clear lie. There's no other word for it. 
the idea that they have just discovered that artificial intelligence is dangerous and they want to protect us. There's no other word for it. And all that work vindicates the argument that they were very aware of the dangers um, through all this. It, it, it's, it's ubiquitous in that type of, uh, of, of discourse, uh, as you are showing. So I think it's very, very valuable to remind us how pervasive this sense was. And I, I, it does raise questions. The questions that I think when I listen to your ontology uh, series is, um, to what extent was it a priming of us to what extent were there people who were seeing what was happening and warning us about this thing? Or to what extent was it just saying, well, this is going to happen and this is the consequence? So I, I, I would love to hear some 90-year-old who worked on some of these things telling us that actually, you know, what their motivation was. There's another factor in there, and you see it in comedy in particular, which has been ignored in a lot of this. I believe if you look at the theories of the propaganda model, that a lot of comic writers, if you see all the, the, the range of comic writers on some of the classic series, didn't realize that they were being prompted to present certain arguments. I'm more and more convinced that when comedy is studied in the future, we will find out that many of the comedy writers were, were being presented with much deeper arguments and the comedy writers thinking they were very clever, were actually useful idiots in this uh, process. And I think I'll be able to, uh, to prove that. I know, I know a lot of people uh, won't, won't, won't like that, but I can really, uh, I really believe that it's important and that when we look back at some of these series that seem prophetic, that actually there was really a deeper sociological point uh, being presented in that. And then there is another point, uh, the just this uh, fantastic element in the sense of, people imagining something that could happen, but that doesn't happen. Now, there is a lot of there is a lot of things which have been imagined which haven't happened, and people claim they have happened or they might, uh, they might happen in a laboratory somewhere. And there is this danger as well about the future, that the future actually is not as, as golden uh, as, as believed. So this, there is this classic myth about the, the future being better, and this, this idea that after the movement, after the Enlightenment, there was a movement away from believing in, a, in an afterlife to believing in a great future, which was, which was heavily involved in the streams of thought that came from Nietzsche that manifested in both the, the, the Nazis and the Bolsheviks. They both had these myths of the future and, and a very important era in relation to the study of myths, and, and, and which made me very conscious of how dangerous myths are. And John F. Kennedy said that myths are more dangerous than lies, was in the hands of the Bolsheviks and how mythology was very, very important and how they actively worked to re-engineer myths, to create new myths. And when you, when you put in that or inject into that a fantasy, which is unrealistic, well, then you leave yourself open for great mistakes. And in my studies of totalitarian systems, you see that often... There's a there's a mismatch, or they, they they begin to discover the difference between their inflated dreams and reality, and problems begin to really accelerate, and it begins to become much more vicious when the regime realizes that it can't manage or it can't achieve what it claimed it would do. For example, in Marxism, there was there was always an idea that 
a certain society would emerge at a particular point. And that was because of, uh, in, according to one theory, that they focused on scientific models of crystallization. And they believe that at a certain point, certain things would happen, would emerge. And this idea of emergence is very, very dangerous. Now, why that makes me fearful in relation to artificial intelligence is that many of these people who are very kind of left brain uh, focused, who want a predictable world, who have limitations, who are blind, as, uh, as Ian McGilchrist says, to certain other considerations, may really believe these things. And they may be really believing in a type of fantasy, which when the, fa- when, when the, fa- when the tide comes out and the boats are left there, uh, may uh, be horrendous that there, uh, that there's all these kind of nonsense they're telling us. One minute they're telling us that it's going to be terrible in the future. The next next week we're going to be all suffering. And these guys are telling us that we're going to live in an area in an age of radical abundance. This is a classic promised land myth. It's allowed. This was this was obviously on the memo as well. Radical abundance, everything you want, stay at home, don't have to work. He's saying this to the prime minister. Uh, for for example, and this radical abundance idea, luxury communism, uh, as it's been described as a serious policy, uh, is uh, is is let go un, unchallenged in 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 all of this. So there is a, a great danger associated with this fantastic element, which is why uh, the artist the artists who perceived their uh, this this danger. We, we have to pay attention to them. And, and where I noticed that in my other book about plantation of automatons was I couldn't fi- figure out this. There was a discordant note for me about a lot of the, the leaders in electronic music. And my conclusion was that they were con- kind of con- canaries in the coal mine, that they got into this industry, you know, the, the electro the computer context. And there was a profound kind of shock about it when they began to understand where it was going. He said a lot of these figures, a lot of these musicians became de- de- depressed. Their life ended. Uh, and I believe that they understood what was going to happen. They had a deep sense of the dystopian future that was emerging from these places. And Bletchley Park, excuse me, as I said, it's quite amazing that they chose Bletchley Park. Because I, sa- I say that a lot of the empire of the mind came from Bletchley Park through the not the Enigma Code and that, but through the cooperation that happened about 1943, which was associated with Churchill and others transforming the British Empire into something different, using technology as had been planned uh, beforehand, where they realized that they they could uh, transform via corporate form using the communications network. So uh, that was my instinct about things. That was my instinct about the history of cybernetics and uh, etc. And then when they have this conference in Bletchley Park, it kind of demonstrates that my hypothesis was not daft, that, that really this is where everything goes back to. This is where the, um, the surveillance uh, global state uh, really comes from. And it comes from a post-industrial transformation uh, into private uh, the private context. So, so yeah, that work that you're doing is important, and uh, I think, I think uh, again, we'll find that other areas as well. Comedy, for example, if you think of Get Smart and that, it's strange when you look at. Uh, you remember Get Smart in the sixties, mm. the American TV series, a comedy series. There's some concepts in that 
that seemed to reflect some kind of reality from somewhere. How they got there, uh, I don't know. And the la last point on that, even the word smart, which is kind of comic, the word smart that was in that comedy uh, series about espionage and intelligent services uh, and chaos and, and control, etc. cetera, the, the, the acronyms that they, they used. The word smart, its etymology is in the concept of pain. I'll say it again, the etymology of the word smart in English comes from the word pain. And I actually don't think that, that that's an accident or something that should be easily forgotten. Well, when I think of smart, you said etymology, pain. Well, yeah, it was like, uh, just I'm going to put some of this uh, ointment on your cut. It may smart a little. Yes. You know, as it, as it right, may yeah, hurt. It's a similar words in Swedish for that. Yeah. Yeah. But also, um, oh, you look very smart in your new suit. Um, I don't know, you know. That's like you know, looking good. You know, looking um, uh, you know, neat and tidy, and looking you know, that that whole context. Uh, and then I remember when I was young, maybe if I was um, talking back to the adults, you know, don't you be so smart? Exactly, they would well, say. You know, thing, yeah. that word that you said about about the you know, the shift to intelligence. They they uh, that was kind of a bit ironic. Uh, they seem to trace that etymologically to the idea that you would be smart in a cutting way maybe a type of humor that Oscar Wilde would have manifested, uh, for, for example, would be smart in that sense, in that it was capable of being painful. Again, the other, uh, another comic context or ironic, the same as Jonathan Swift might have been. So, so, that, so the connection uh, isn't lost in those, or it's not a, a, a chance connection. Sorry. Well, you talked about the, the radical abundance idea. That, that's one of the kind of absurdities that we're living in at the minute. Which is from left, right, and center, uh, we're being assailed with uh, limitations. Uh, you know, we got to cut back and can't do this, can't do that. And, you know, cost of living crisis, as the press like to parrot, you know, here in the UK constantly. I'm sure there's the equivalent in most other countries. There's certainly a one angle you can look at this that the future of AI and, and the, the promise of that, you know, by some, uh, as articulated by some of its advocates. And the transhumanist agenda, even if it's ill understood by the masses, is almost a way of saying, well, we've got the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset thing just saying, you know, we're going to have to change the way that we live. But don't worry, because if you're living in a in a pod, you know, you'll be happy and own nothing and eating Z-bugs. Uh, here's AI and the transhumanist agenda coming to offer you a different type of future. So it's like, you know, it's it's the, again it's the whole non-material thing, isn't it? If things being virtual will be in the cloud. You'll be wearing, you know, you'll be wearing your uh, your your AI headset, and you'll be going on holiday while sitting in an armchair and all the rest of it. So, whatever you think about resource issues, you know, on the Earth, certainly there's one way of looking at it: is that this is a this is a sop. It's a way of saying, you know, if the future does look bleak, uh, but don't worry because uh, because technology. Yeah, the the. A lot of what we're talking about is a simulacrum that we've talked about before. It's a simulation, and the simulation uh, is based on a kind of stimulation of certain parts of the brain or activities. So it's a stimulation of, of, of uh, certain elements of our cognitive function, which denies our spiritual uh, element. And it's a, it's a type of physiological uh, element as well. Uh, the idea really is, I, I suppose it comes from, from Trotsky and that is of a permanent revolution. So the permanent revolution happens every day now. So 
what you taught yesterday was wrong today and it's going to be wrong tomorrow and the world is going to be so different in five years time in seven years time in 10 years time that it will be very very difficult to have those moorings because there's a certain type of uh, amnesia that we have an alzheimer's associated with this this living in a a total uh, virtual uh, moment the radical abundance idea it can't go together they're either they're telling somebody is telling us lies about this and radical abundance of what a radical abundance of of tat certainly you know there can that that can happen uh but or a radical abundance of of bugs but the, the only thing we're having a radical abundance of is fear uh disease this invention of new diseases bed bugs all of a sudden are a big problem i mean it's, it's quite remarkable so i was thinking about uh, uh, another expression it is interesting to go back on the language of the popular language as you talked about smart was a if my mother called me smart it was it was a bad thing uh another word another term they used to use maybe they didn't use it to you when i was a kid was they say you know someone you're getting on my nerves to get on someone's nerves and this mm. is an expression which is very very uh, interesting because uh if we look at francis bacon the painter he said when you're looking at a painting a painting gets on your nerves it re- affects your nervous system and it was a profound statement really when one thinks about it the artificial intelligence intends to get in your nerves that we are now wired up to the nervous system of this new uh, entity and a book uh, Deutscher, I referred to it, the nerves of government in the 60s, uh, he, he wrote explaining this machine of government in terms of a, a great corporate body. So there is an effort to create this new kind of atom uh, as, as a global entity. This was behind the idea of Taylor de Chardin, uh, etc. And we are meant to be assumed into that. And that's what, as well, Terence McKenna was talking about. I don't think people are really listening to what he was saying about humans that they 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 give him a pass because if you say to people go out and take drugs whatever they say oh he's on my side you know he understands me they don't they're not focusing on what he actually said about a future evolution and on his views on on humans you really have to be critical about some of these figures that 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 uh that appear nice but the idea that we're, we're we're facing radical abundance is just a myth it's just a story and it's a story that journalists let go uh they 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 they, they don't question it and and what i say now is that all of the people that haven't been involved the clever people that are out there the wonderful people that can distinguish reality from fantasy really have to get involved in this that we really have to have a force of people not organized uh, there was a great expression from Swedenborg about being secret agents of the Holy Spirit, uh, or secret agents of whatever, of the Spirit, secret agents. The idea that you work for a good cause, but you don't have to reveal that you're doing that. We're going to have to have a lot of, of people uh, assisting in a kind of intellectual realignment of the world in a critical force of opposition and a nonviolent force, because otherwise... We're going to be played by all these stories. It's so easy. The computers can tell them the stories to play us in this in this great simulation. Now I know there's a lot of theory about 
we're living in a sim- simulation. I don't believe that. Uh, but they're going to create something that will be a simulation. And we are certainly living in something that will be more and more like a, commun- uh, a, a computer game as our nervous system is integrated into this electronic nervous system. Yeah, this idea of a, not so much of a resistance, but as you say, as an intellectual realignment, I think was your phrase. Very, very important going forward. And certainly in that, you know, dispersed way that you describe, uh, yeah, I think you start having organizations and clubs and networks that are too tight. That becomes something that becomes visible in the wrong sort of way and can be targeted. But I don't know if you have completely broken with your former former you know legal circles as it were but i can imagine a situation where you might find yourself you know socially or something with former colleagues and uh you you know they knew that we were having this conversation uh you know somebody might try turned into a bit of a conspiracy not hasn't he what's he going on about you know he was you know he was so smart you know but <laughs> but here he is yeah. going down going down this rabbit hole so I, I mentioned that because there's still such widespread lack of concern about these issues and they the thing is, this is against a background, as you say, of people like Elon Musk and lots of others, actually, and people who would know, you know, people who are involved with this, talking about the dangers. Now, whatever is whatever agenda they might have, we, we can set aside for a second. But, I mean, I was looking at a list of, a reading list of books from AI insiders, I say, people who would know, and their books are varied in their in their themes, but each one of them has some kind of uh, warning element to it. You know, even the ones that are going, this is, you know, the, the future is is bright. There's still always a chapter of like, oh, you know, with an asterisk going, by the way, exceptions to this sort of thing. And some of them are outright just saying, you know, uh, like, you know, the, the one, I can't remember the exact title, I think you referenced it, you know, our final invention, you know, and that that's at least yeah. 10, 10 years old, that book. Uh, so yeah, we what we've got is this widespread lack of concern or even interest in these issues. Um, against the background of there never being more people, whatever their intentions are, whatever their motivation is, saying we need to be very careful here. Yeah, you're, you're right on that. And I generally, I made a big effort to not have links because I knew I'd, I would have some whatever commercial associations or uh, opportunities, and and some of them are very nice opportunities. You know, the, uh, I, I did some international work, and then when someone says, well. If you want to do some project in the Caribbean, it might have been nice, etc. So it was good not to have have uh, have connections in that context. But you're right in relation to that. And the problem is that when you're in a system, it's very hard to see it from the outside. It's very hard to contextualize. And when it's done bit by bit, like the you know the the boiled frog, it can be hard to see. I I, I do see some some of the people I studied with, uh, uh, you know, maintaining at least their consistency and, and their honor. And I see a lot of people that uh, have been silent and obviously not critical of the system. I did see, uh, interestingly, one old colleague who has done some interesting work on the growth of private armies. Now, that was a thing that I had no concept of. It just wasn't on my radar. And this this remarkable growth of private armies in the world, it's unbelievable. This is a a very important phenomenon. And it's one that you're kind of not expecting. uh, But... With this, everything is about privatization, because if you look at Elon Musk again, of course, his SpaceX, and it's interesting, of course, his focus on X. And I just remind people that the X Club was what what 
Thomas Huxley called his club, which is was a kind of early entryist organization of scientists who wanted to take the spirit out of discourse in the in the 19th century in Britain, and I believe was a very important in the growth of the empire of scientism. So when I see the the X club on his SpaceX, and when you see his preoccupations with space exploration, intelligence uh, expansion, these are what Bernal said in in the 20s. These were the characteristics of taking over the world by scientific corporations, by stealth, so people didn't know. This was consistent with H.G. Wells' uh, view. So he's he, he's 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 plinging all those uh, those bells that indicate that. Uh, he is uh, right uh, in that context. So uh, the the thing about private armies is, is no surprise because, of course, SpaceX and that is a privatization essentially of the space race. So, so what what this privatization model has done is to transfer public resources to private forces. So this is what this is the great beauty of this scheme. Where all these billionaires come from is because. Um, the poor people have been given their money for various things for various years, and they come al- then these groups come along and work in conjunction with the Pentagon, etc. And we get a massive transfer of investment and research and public funds into what effectively are transnational corporations. And this same function is happening in relation to private armies as well. So there won't be any soon there won't be any uh, national armies in the same way there'll be various forces various groups uh, as well as the supranational forces like nato etc which of course then begin to dominate uh, uh, national sovereignty so the uh, yeah i i accept that i'm certainly uh, on the fringe but the there is an obligation from people that understand about regulation to to present their views. One of the problems is, Greg, that a lot of the people didn't understand. A lot of the people that came up in a national context, learned the law of their country, didn't really understand that their country had been turned into a transnational uh, context and that a lot of the previous institutions were being privatized and a lot of the assumptions had been had been gone so they were there was an old paradigm in their head which would have you know meant that they were gradually adju- adjusting to the the changing situation but the last point the this radical abundance idea this uh, the the concatenation of all these different forces bring us back to what john lilly was talking about about the growth of a solid state entity which consumes all the resources of the world because of course the ai and the ai system and the network is very resource intensive but we don't kind of see that and that's why it's important to understand ai in context and kate crawford in her book atlas of ai is is good on that explaining how ai is not this independent force That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.